Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. Appreciate you being here. Uh, before we begin with our lesson, I do have a, a very important uh, announcement to make. Uh, I know that some of you, this has been a concern for yours for quite some time, and you haven't thought about anything else for several weeks. But uh, the uh, the ice maker is fixed. We have a new ice maker. And it has been installed, and I want to thank uh, Jamie and uh, Chris Andrews and uh, BJ, and I think Angel helped out some as well. So appreciate all those for, for uh, installing it. So, you know, we, we have ice again, so that's, uh, that's good. Some of you are, if your parents, you remember those times, if you're old enough, your children are old enough, you remember those times when it was time to say goodbye, time to kind of let go. Uh, may have been the first day you had to drop them off at daycare, or it may have been the first day of kindergarten as, uh, you know, you stood outside your kindergarten class with your face pressed up to the window, maybe. Or the first night that they spent the night, had an overnight at somebody else's house. Or when they went off to college. Or when they got married. Or moved away. And we, as parents, remember that, you know, that was a a time of anxiety. Wondering, did we teach them all the things we needed to teach them? Did we say everything that we needed to say? And in John chapter 13, chapters 13 through 17, we have this goodbye that Jesus is having with his disciples. It begins with the washing of the feet and and goes on. And we've talked over the last few weeks about uh, Jesus saying that he was going to prepare a place for them and that he was the way, the truth and the life. And And this is an important time that Jesus is having with his disciples because it's the last real time before his crucifixion and even before his ascension, that he he really has one-on-one with them to teach them. So the things that he says have got to be important. We have looked at, and and in this chapter 15, in John chapter 15, you can turn there, we have the last of the great I am's of Jesus that we see in the book of John. He had said earlier, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in this conversation he has with his disciples, he's made predictions. He's given promises. He's told them encouragement. And he's given them instructions. But now he comes to this last analogy of the way of, of an I am Beginning in John chapter 15 and verse 1, he says, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So there will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. A couple of weeks ago, I think on a, on a Wednesday night, Johnny Williams was giving the devotional. And he mentioned that uh, I have said in the past that that I like when Paul uses either military analogies or sports analogies, because I can relate to that. And Johnny said, but what he likes in the Bible more is the agricultural analogies. Well, what we have here is an agricultural analogy. And I am going to speak way beyond my ability as I try to help us understand a little bit what Jesus is saying here as if it wasn't self-evident anyway. But Jesus often used the agriculture analogy, the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheats and tares, and then lots of them have to do with vineyards and the, the master's vineyards and different things like that. So it's something Jesus used a lot. But this idea that he talks about, I am the vine and you are the branches, shows the blessings that we have by being branches in Jesus Christ, as well as the responsibilities that we have. In this analogy, we see four different elements that Jesus mentions. The first element he mentions is the vine. And he declares himself to be the true vine, not just the vine, but the true vine, which makes me assume there are imposter vines out there. If Jesus says, I am the true vine, that kind of says, well, there must be some false vines out there, some imposters. It is through the vine that the nutrients and minerals and water are passed to the branches. And I'm thinking, as I'm thinking vine and branches, I'm thinking, you know, like a vineyard, like a grapevine or whatever. But I think it's true, I guess, you know, whether we're talking about the tree and then branches that go off the tree. But it's through the roots and then the vine that the branches receive all the things that it needs to sustain life. And in that sense, Jesus obviously is our life. He's already said that a couple of times in the book of John. But just as the light of the world shows the way to the Father, just as the bread of life gives life, just as the gate provides access to the Father, just as the good shepherd protects the sheep, just as Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And as we talked about, as he said, I am the way, the way, the truth and the life. Jesus is reiterating again his exclusiveness. I am the true vine. Without me, he says a little later, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you will die. You will wither. You will be thrown into the fire. There may be other false religions. There may be other false teachers. There may be other false uh, ways people giving ways to get to the father or get to heaven. But Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth and the life. Apart from him, there is no access to the father and there is no real life. 
So he talked about the vine and then he talks about the branches. The branches are you and me. Did you notice one word that kept repeating over and over again in that little section? At least 10 times Jesus uses the word remain. Remain. If you remain in me, if you remain, and if you have the King James, it may say abide. It may be abide in the King James. But if you remain in me, we understand that for a branch of the survive, it must be connected to the vine. Now, again, I'm no botanist. I'm no farmer. And I know that there are certain plants that you can cut a branch off and replant it and it will grow. Am I right about that? I've heard of that being done. Okay. I've never done it myself. But I know that if the branch is just cut off and just thrown or laying around, it's going to die. I'm, you know, I can kind of, kind of get that. That makes sense to me. Here in East Texas, we have that happen all the time, don't we? Because we have those storms come in and we have that wind come in and we have those branches that just, you know, break off the tree and they're lying around and eventually those branches die. And what do we do? We throw them in the pile and we burn them, except we're under a burn ban, so don't be doing that today, okay? Some other time. But we understand that when the branch is away from the vine, it cannot survive. Now, analogies and allegories can only go so far. In real life, branches are at the mercy of the nature and elements. The wind, heat, animals, all can separate a branch from the vine. But when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, we are active, not passive. We choose to remain or not. Now, there may be spiritual pressures beating against us. The storms and winds of life, the roaring lions seeking to break us off. But it is up to us. It is up to us as individuals, whether or not we remain. Nothing and nobody can break us off from the vine. But we can choose not to remain on the vine and not to remain connected with Jesus and benefit from being connected. Unlike the animal kingdom and the spiritual kingdom, we decide to be connected to the true vine or separate ourselves from it. And so he talks about the vine. He talks about the branches. He also talks about the fruit. He says that the good branches are going to produce fruit. The bad branches are going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. And he says, this is how you will show that you are my disciples. If you bear much fruit. Now in the New Testament, the idea of fruit bearing takes on two different meanings. There is a sense in which sometimes when Jesus is talking about bearing fruit and then even some of the writers later on in the uh, epistles, he's talking about producing other Christians. That as Christians, we ought to produce fruit. We ought to bear fruit. We ought to be going out and making disciples. We ought to be reaching out to the people around us and sharing with them the good news of Jesus. And in that sense, producing fruit. 
through the others that we are able to, uh, to reach. I know that Ben is probably having withdrawals this morning because Chuck and others are in Ghana and he's not there. And for many years he is, and for lots of times he has gone to Ghana and the work there has produced fruit. And that fruit is the hundreds and maybe thousands of Christians that have been converted in, in uh, Ghana and now Togo uh, and that part of the world. And not just in Ghana, not just in Togo, not just in Brazil, not just in wherever. But there is opportunity to produce fruit around us every day. There are those who do not know the message of Jesus. There are those who are not connected to the true vine. And we as Christians ought to be reaching out and sharing with them and telling them the good news of Jesus Christ. So that is one way in which we bear fruit. But another way that the Bible talks about as he talks about bearing fruit is the fruit we see in our lives. You remember Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. How are, how are we doing as far as that fruit being produced in our lives? Are we able, or can we say, you know, some of us have been Christians a long time, right? Some of us a really long time. But can we say that we're more loving? than we were when we first became a Christian, that we're more joyful, that we have more peace, that we're more patient, that we're kinder, gentler, all those different things. Are we better at those things than we were? Is that fruit being produced in our lives? It ought to be. And I think the connection here is if If I'm not bearing that fruit in my life, if I'm not kinder, gentler, you know, more loving and all those different things, then I have to ask myself, am I truly connected to the vine? And I'm really abiding in or in tune with Jesus. Is there really that connection? Because if I am remaining as the branch, if I'm remaining in the vine, then I am going to be getting the same characteristics of the vine. And so we need to be producing that fruit in our lives. And I think when he talked about that, he's talking about both. And I think one leads to the other. If we are not seeing... The fruit of the spirit growing in our lives, then it's going to be very hard to produce other Christians. Because if they do not see the fruit of the spirit in our lives, they're not going to want any part of it. We're not going to be able to to share with them because they'll see no need for it. They won't they won't want to listen. And so we need to have the fruit in our lives.
And the fourth element that he talks about in, in this analogy is the gardener. Jesus says that the father is the gardener and that he cuts off those branches that bear no fruit. Now, that makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? If I am a peach farmer, we'll just go with peaches. If I am a peach farmer and I have peach trees and these particular branches on this tree never produce any peaches, why am I going to keep it there? It is stealing and sucking the nutrients and the good stuff from the branches that are producing peaches. So I'm going to cut those off and I'm going to throw them into the fire. That makes all the sense to me in the world. Jesus says, if you are a branch, if I am a branch, if we are a branch that produces no fruit, his father, the gardener, is going to cut us off and throw us into the fire. You remember Jesus, as he was walking into Jerusalem one day, saw the fig tree that had all the leaves, all the blooms. It had everything. It looked like a fig tree ought to look. And it looked like it ought to have some big old juicy figs on it. Now, I'm not a fig person. Now, I do like fig newtons. And I do like fig jelly. But I don't like figs. But that's beside the point. But if you like figs, if that's your thing, and you're kind of hungry, and you see this big fig tree, your mouth kind of starts watering, and you think, I can't wait to get one of those figs, and just bite into it. And Jesus starts looking around amongst all the beautiful leaves, all the green branches, and there's not a single fig on the tree. And he curses the tree. He and his disciples go on into Jerusalem. And later that evening, they're on their way out. And the tree is dead. Now, I've sprayed Roundup. Maybe I have cancer. I don't know if you've seen that. But anyway, I've used Roundup and other things to kill, you know, plants. And it does not normally work that fast. But Jesus cursed the tree and it died because it had no fruit. So the idea of cutting off the branch that bears no fruit and throwing it into the fire. We don't have any problem with that, do we? Got no problem with that. But Jesus also says that the gardener prunes The good branches. Ooh. I don't. I don't get that. Now just imagine you're a peach tree. And just imagine that your branches. Have nerves and everything else. Just like your arms and legs do. And the gardener comes along. And begins to prune. That just hurts. What's, quit that. You know, if I could be one of, what, uh, what, who's that 
snuffleupagus, muffin, muffleupagus dude. From, well, yeah, there was a talking tree in that little children's show way back when. I'll think of it in a minute. But anyway, ER puffin stuff. Thank you. That's it. Anyway, he had a talking tree. Imagine, you can just imagine the pain involved in the pruning. And that just doesn't make any, any sense to me. But I know it happens. I, I don't get it because I'm not a, you know, peach farmer. But I drive enough out towards Pittsburgh that I know that that happens. That after the, the harvest is done and the, the peaches have all been, then at some point in time before the fall, the spring, they go out and they cut all the branches off. Start over. Why? Because that's going to produce better fruit. Because if you leave those old branches on there, they're not going to produce as much fruit as the good branch, the new branches. I'm assuming, I'm guessing here, you know. I know that several years ago, when Kenny and I went to Oregon, my parents took us to uh, some friends that had moved up to Oregon and bought a vineyard. And so they took us on a tour of this vineyard, which was very, very interesting. Because what they do is, is when the, the clusters of grapes begin to grow on the vine and they get to be a, a certain size, I don't know what it is. Then the, the gardeners or the tenders of the vineyard will go out and they will look at, and normally a branch will have three clusters, And they will look at the best cluster and leave it attached to the vine and cut the others off. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm more math than I am agriculture. And I'm thinking you've just cut off two thirds of your grapes. That doesn't make any sense to me mathematically. Well, it's not a mathematical situation. It says, if we don't do that, then what's going to happen is we're going to have three mediocre clusters of grapes. Whereas if we cut two of them off, we'll have one really excellent cluster of grapes. It will be better by far. And I'm like, cool. I didn't know anything like that. Now, as human beings... As God's children, the idea of being pruned bothers me a little bit. Why do I have to go through that pain? Why do I have to go through that trial? Why do I have to go through that hardship? Can't you just kind of leave me alone and I'll be all right? But over and over again, we find in the Bible that God tells us it is through our hardships that we become stronger. It is through our trials that we build Christian character. It is through that pruning process that we become more like God wants us to be. You see, God prunes us. Because he loves us and he takes care of us 
and he wants what's best for us. Years ago, when we moved into the house that Mark and Jew are in now, there was a plum tree in the yard. Now, I've already told you, I'm not an agriculture person. But I would assume that for that plum tree to thrive, it would have needed to be pruned very similar to, I'm assuming, the peach trees. The way that they're... But as I already told you, that plum tree was in my yard. So it was not going to get much taken care of. In fact, virtually not. And it didn't take long before, first of all, it quit producing any plums. And then it eventually died. Why? Because it just didn't mean that much to me. And I didn't take care of it. If it meant something to me, if I wanted those plums, plus Even when we had the plums, the birds and squirrels got to them first anyway, but that's not the point. But if I really loved that tree and cared about it, I would have pruned it and I would have taken care of it. If God didn't care about us, if he didn't love us, he wouldn't bother pruning us. He wouldn't bother trying to make us stronger. He just let us go on our own way and figure it out all on our own. Parents, isn't that what we try to tell our children about discipline? If I didn't love you, I wouldn't ground you. Now, when they're that age, they ain't, uh, what, well, that's just the stupidest thing I ever heard of. But they'll get to the point like the rest of us, right? Where it makes a whole lot of sense. If I didn't love you or care about you, I'd just let you do whatever you want to. But I do love you. I do care about you. And God loves us and God cares about us. But beyond the agricultural analogy, look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you, but you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And this is my command. Love each other. I want you to think about that. As a child of God. That Jesus has chosen us to be his friends. Can you imagine what that would have meant to the disciples to whom he was talking on that night? 
Because up until that point, it was the master-servant, the teacher-student relationship. For the last three years, that's what it had been. And now Jesus is saying, I'm changing that relationship. It's no longer master-student or master-servant-student, teacher-student. We are now friends. Some of you have been perhaps in situations. uh, We have a lot of teachers and former teachers here. And maybe you've been in situations where you had a student and you were a a teacher-student, had that teacher-student relationship. And then sometime perhaps after they graduated or got out of your class or whatever, that changed. And you became friends. I know that as youth minister, you know, I like to, you know, I'm, I'm friends with the kids, but, you know, it's not kind of the same thing. But then sometimes over the years after they graduate or whatever, when, when I'm still friends, friends with them, well, it's a whole different level of relationship. Jesus is saying you are no, I no longer am calling you servants. I'm no longer calling you students. I'm calling you my friends. That means all the difference in the world. When I was at Texas A&M in the Corps of Cadets, as a freshman, you're dirt. Okay, that's just it. And you call everybody Mr., I guess now Miss too, not so much when I was there, but Mr. So-and-so. You never called anybody in the Corps by their first name. It was Mr. So-and-so, Mr. so you know, and, and, and so virtually the entire first half of, of your freshman year is Mr. So-and-so, you know, and you're the fish and they're the upperclassmen and, you know, you're dirt. And, yeah. and then at some point in time into the second semester, if the upperclassmen choose to, they do what's called, and this is just the term, dropping the handle. And what that means is, is that you then are now allowed to call them by their first name. I got to tell you, when you're a freshman, my freshman year, our dorm was in the same dorm as the, the core staff. The seniors who ran the corps, the, the, the corps commander. And so we were in the same dorm. And so, so as we'd go up and down, you know, every day as freshmen, you know, you had to stand against the wall and call out the dude's name whenever you saw him. Howdy, Mr. Zone, you know, and all that. And so you did that all the time. And so as a freshman, when early into the second semester, the corps commander drops handle with you. And allows you to call them by their first name. I got to tell you. That's a pretty good feeling. In fact, I would see him across campus. And I might be with some other freshmen. Who did not have that privilege. And I would purposely. Walk that way. So that I could call him by his first name. And they couldn't. Because we had a special relationship. I don't think he knew who I was, but that's beside the point. Jesus is calling us his friends. But you know what? That friendship is conditional. 
It's not unconditional friendship. Some of you, wait, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, God, it's unconditional. You are my friends if you do what I command. If you do what I say. Well, you know, the, the opposite is kind of self-explanatory, isn't it? <laughs> if you don't do what I command, you can't be my friends. How could we ever get the idea that we could live our lives any way we wanted to? Do anything we wanted to. Go against everything that Jesus taught. And that we could still be friends with him. You are my friends if you do what I command. And it's also conditional on the fact that we love one another. That we love each other. Have you ever been in a situation where two of your really good friends could not get along? How uncomfortable is that for you? Jesus is saying you love each other. You love each other. This is how you show yourselves to be my friends. You know, it's kind of, what is it? Did we talk about it? Is it the transitive property? You know, we talk about this. If A equals B, B equals C, A equals C, right? Something like that. You know, so if, if I am Jesus' friend and you are Jesus' friend, then you have to be my friend. You have to be my friend. And I need to love you. And I need to show that love. So as Jesus is getting ready, trying to prepare his disciples for that time when he's not going to be here, he says, remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me, bear fruit. And you are my friends if you do what I command. And you love one another. If you're here this morning, there's some way we can help or encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903 645 Nine, six. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, 
and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.